Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listener-supported WDRT. You are listening to The Skeptical Naturopath, here with Paul Rattay and Christina DeRocher. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Christina. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah. All right, so moderation. Moderation is the word, right? Is That's the, the topic of the month. So moderation, I'll just use the... Uh, the quote by uh, Oscar Wilde, right? Moderation is a fatal thing. Nothing succeeds like excess. Ah, we want to leave off that second part, right? Let's just talk about moderation as a fatal thing. Why is, and we use that word all the time. Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. What's wrong with moderation? Why, why would that be an obstacle, right? As I talk about an obstacle to cure. Probably because my idea of moderation is different from your idea of moderation. Ah, subjective experience, yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to always pull this, you know, that we are really good rationalizers, Americans. <laughs> We're very poor rationers. You remember the ration tickets? Or I, 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 I don't was just going to say, yeah, we are not even of that generation, but that generation remembers rationing as a very negative experience. Yes. And you know what happened during World War II? So during rationing. Because we didn't ration in World War One, it was World War Two mm-hmm. that you got the ration book and you could buy so much sugar, so much milk, so much eggs, that the the risk of cardiovascular so cardiovascular deaths from cardiovascular disease, at least how we defined them in 1942, yes, because mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease was an issue there. We just didn't have ischemic heart disease as a diagnosis yet, but people died of heart disease that went way down. Of course, it decreased. And we'd say, oh, well, we were at war, so people were dying of you know, gunshot wounds, right? Dying in war. Well, who dies of gunshot Who dies in war? Young men who aren't going to die of cardiovascular disease either, right? Right. So it's kind of, we see this effect that rationing had. But we rationed a lot of things yeah, during World War II. Almost, we rationed eggs. Right, meat, cheese. We rationed milk, cheese, sugar, gasoline. Mm-hmm. Right? Perhaps maybe it was the gasoline that did it. So you got to ration gasoline. That means now you have to walk instead of riding in your car. Hmm. I mean, I don't know the, the impact of that, but th- these are the things we change our behavior and we see potential benefit from that. We just can't, I, you know, we can't say f- firmly it was because of this. So maybe we just need to live on Ration Island. That's kind of my <laughs> thought, right? You could come to my island and it's going to be, uh, and you're going to buy ration tickets for me, but I'm going to tell you, that the cost of alcohol and the cost of co- coffee and the cost of uh, sugar are going to be quite high. <laughs> I, I sense a boring diet coming on. <laughs> yes. So, how, you know, how much, what is the full, you know, health cost of sugar? I mean, considering it's a literal neurotoxin, I would say it's quite high, so, the damage. But how much do we pay for sugar today? What does sugar Almost cost nothing. a pound? It's I, in everything. It? It's in bread. I know. It's like 38 cents a pound or something. And understand that that's still subsidized, that the, the sugar farmers in the United States get a subsidy from sugar. So that 38 cents, it's like 4 cents goes direct to the, I, I don't know what, what percentage it is. But a lower goes amount. back to the, the sugar producers in the United States. That's a kickback. That's kind of a bad kickback too, but that's a another conversation. But regardless, sugar is dirt cheap. Right. And because it's dirt cheap, what do we do with it? Put it in everything. Oh my gosh, right. So ice cream, ice cream is what? The perfect emulsification. <laughs> of milk of and sugar. Cream. Cream and sugar. Cream and sugar, yes. Right. How much does cream cost? 
Uh, it's very expensive. Very expensive. Sugar's cheap. So what happens to ice cream that you buy off the counter, you know, off the shelf? It gets sweeter. It gets sweeter, and then is there actually cream in it? Oh, is there not cream in well, it? Well, maybe. I mean, the expensive ones will have, I would say, more cream. But take a look at the ice cream container, and you'll see. Oh, it's got skim milk in it. Oh, they're cutting but how it. How do they? How do they cut it? Uh, they have to add, uh, excuse me, something for the mouthfeel because uh, skin yes. milk isn't as thick as cream. Carrageenan, guar gum, mm -hmm. gum arabic. So thickeners. Right. So the use of thickeners is to make ice cream. The question is, can your palate pick up on that? I bet yours can. Oh, my gosh, my palate <laughs> can pick up on that, right? So I eat ice right. cream. I'm like, oh, it's too sweet. There's not enough fat, right? There's that mouthfeel that you're looking for that fat produces. But anyway, so that, that's just how, you know, the... The food industry adapts, right? So we've got ice cream, which let's say maybe a hundred years ago would be more of an equal balance because how much did sugar cost a hundred years ago? More. More. Right? Yeah. And when something costs more, how much do we consume of it? Not not as much. Less. Right. Unless we have unlimited resources. If we're royalty, right, Henry the Eighth, I mean, ate a lot of sugar. Right. And Why? kings and queens were notoriously crazy. Crazy and probably overweight, too. I, I, that, I, that I don't know. Henry VIII was, yes. Yeah. But, but regardless, it's just like you have unlimited resources, then you're going to eat those. You're going to eat refined bread, too. Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, the peasants would be eating brown bread. It would be like white bread would be considered for the royalty. Right. And now what do we do? We it's, eat it all the time, right? It's yeah. not just for royalty. In fact, that's the norm. Yeah, and in China and Japan, the same with white rice versus brown rice. Yeah, right? it's interesting. Why do they eat white rice in Japan and China? Do you, do we, did we talk about this? Uh, I don't Why is it white so. rice? Um, I thought because it was considered only what the royalty ate, and so now... Somewhat, but everybody eats it. Mm -hmm. And I lived in Japan, and I tell you, I could eat white rice, like sushi rice, the sticky rice, oh, forever. yeah. But what is it? Why, why, why not brown? I mean, the health benefits of brown. Right. First I, of all, white rice is easier to digest. So you remove the germ in the hull, and it's easier to digest. And we're looking for an energy source, and we don't want to... I mean, that was one piece. The other piece is it, it keeps longer. Storage. It's funny. Bugs don't want to eat white rice, but they want to eat brown rice. Huh. Yeah. Or not that they don't want to eat it, but that they're not getting any benefit from that. So perhaps the bugs know something that we don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. So it's the white rice thing. Huh. Do you know the in-between? So the rice that I eat. So again, I lived in Japan. I mean, I ate rice with chopsticks, and it was like you'd eat every kernel yes. of rice. Yes. And you'd be like grabbing them with a chopstick. That's a way to get good at using chopsticks. It's also better for your digestion. You can't you can't eat too fast that <laughs> oh way. Oh my gosh, eating eggs with chopsticks. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> really good at uh, at, at uh, eating, you know, using chopsticks. So, but but regardless, so the rice that I use, right? So I have to deal with this cognitive dissonance with me, right? Like, oh my gosh, I love white rice, but brown rice is better for me because it's got fiber, it's got other things. So I've eaten haiga rice. Did we talk about haiga rice? I think you've told me about so it. So haiga oh, rice, yeah. they've removed the germ. Uh, no, they've removed the hull, but not the germ. Okay. So the germ is intact. How do you spell haiga? Haiga. H-A-I-G-A. -A. Huh. I can tell you the, the Asian, the, what's J, is it the place in Sparta? Is it J-Store? The, the, or the, the Asian market there. They okay. have haiga rice because I've talked to them. 
So they've ordered it. So, but Haiga uh, can't find an organic source of it. There's only two brands that I've seen. But anyways, Haiga is in between white rice and brown rice. So it's got more of that sticky hold together kind of thing, but it's still a little brown-like. So that's my rationalization. It's so not organic, but it's better it's for you. It's not organic, but it's got the germ in it. So yeah. that's just the issue of, like, brown rice is not the same as eating white rice. Oh, by far not. But if you grew up eating brown rice, you, you like a brown rice. It's not that I don't eat it. It's just that I know white rice. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the Haiga rice is the way that I rationalize, right? That's my, I don't know, maybe my moderation piece. I'm not mm. sure. But anyway, so we got that. That's a rabbit hole to go down. But we were on sugar. Yes. Right. So sugar. So why is sugar so cheap is part of the question. Right. If we were paying $50 a pound for sugar, how much would we eat? Not as much as we it do It wouldn't now. be loaded in the food industry. They, they wouldn't put it in everything. They would be putting like, wow, the same cost of uh, cream versus ice cream. The ice cream would get a lot less sweet. Right. And there'd be as much cream in it. But again, relatively speaking, it's inexpensive, so we use it in everything. So it and plus be... you can hook people on it. Yes, the bliss point. Right. So it must be inexpensive to produce. Yeah, is it inexpensive to produce? Yeah, but perhaps. The problem with sugar, I don't know if this is true. With, I th- it is true with, with beet sugar and sugar cane. So, you know, it became the, kind of the perfect food for plantation for the formation of plantation because sugar cane and sugar beets as well, when it's harvested, it has to be processed right away. Mm-hmm. So you can't take it and then, Storage. you know, so if we grow it in the Caribbean and then send it back to England to be processed, it's got to be processed right where it's picked or right where it's harvested. So there's a whole operation that goes into in into play to then process that sugar cane and turn it into the plain white stuff, right? And there's all the different kinds of sugar, right? You can get the brown sugar. I can't remember the names of this, right? The like rum too was another byproduct of the sugar industry. Oh. But anyways, it was a perfect thing to lead to slavery as well because we need to do we need to run a plantation and doing a lot of menial work. Right. So who's going to do the menial work, right? We have to plant it. We have to harvest it. We have to cut it. We have to boil it. We have to go through all that. And it's all done in-house. Right. So it's very labor intensive. And it still is that way. I mean, we've mechanized a lot of it. But that's just the idea that that's led to this this piece that it's kind of still relatively, I, I don't know, expensive is the right word, but there's a bunch of processing that has to go on. For the beet and the cane. For the beet, for both sugar beets and sugar cane. Yeah. So I lived in Grand Forks for a while, so there's the, the sugar beet harvesting, and then they would be processing it, and you can smell it. You can smell it in the air, right? And people would come to work just to pick the sugar beets during sugar beet season. Okay. So I guess migrant workers, but I could have done that, right? I mean, it's like, oh, we're going to work, you know, basically all day because we have to harvest it now. We have to process it now. So it's processed in town. It wasn't necessarily a plantation, but the same sort of operation. Yeah, same operation. But we have uh, corn syrup. Uh, yes. Yeah, so it's corn syrup that changed everything, right? Because so why is the price of sugar what determines price in a capitalistic society? Well, part of it is whether you have to get it from someone else or whether you produce it yourself, and yeah. then part of it is the processing itself. Sure, those are How aspects that determine the price, perhaps, yes, mm-hmm. but it's all supply and demand. Right. How much people So want what's it? the demand for sugar, Ben? Very high. Very high forever. 
Yeah. We can go back to 1835 when we ate 25 pounds of sugar a year. And did humans like sugar less in 1825? <laughs> no. No, we all love it. <laughs> it's just that it was more expensive. So more expensive means, you know, less consumption or, you know, less buying. So the idea is that, so the demand has always been there. So it's all about how do we maintain the supply mm -hmm. and how do we get it? And again, like I've said, that it's still a process for us to get sugar from sugar beets and sugar cane. And the United States, can we produce all the sugar that we need, need, want, <laughs> desire from what's grown in the United States? We certainly produce enough corn to make corn syrup. Yeah, but sugar, no, we don't, right? So sugar beets grow in a certain area, right? Yeah, it would have corn to be grows down everywhere. south, right? No, sugar beets at Red River Valley in North Dakota. Oh, so really? That, oh, yeah, that's big sugar beet country. Okay. Right? Because they, they thrive there, so it's the right environment. That sugar beets versus sugar cane is going to be more tropical. Yeah, okay. Guess that's so maybe Louisiana, we grow some, and I think they're turning the Everglades. I mean, they're reclaiming some of the Everglades to grow sugar cane there. Oh, no. And what's the incentive for that? Because those sugar farmers get a kickback if they're making it in the, you know, if they're, if they're farmers in the United States. So Brazilian farmers aren't getting that kickback right. on the sugar they oh, make. It's too bad. The Everglades are amazing. Yeah, well, anyway, so you can... You can look into this whole process, but but uh, so the whole idea is is that we have a we we have to import it because we can't produce everything that we want. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we get it from Brazil, right, or other countries too. Brazil is just a big country; they make a lot, you know, they produce a lot of sugar, and they're a big um, exporter of sugar. We import it from Brazil. We pay Brazil, you know, whatever cost it is for sugar, right? And that that prices change. They fluctuate. Mm -hmm. In fact, Richard Nixon, when we, when he was in office, when he was going for re-election or talking about re-election, the big big thing was to keep the to keep the prices of food stable. Oh. They don't want to see so much fluctuation in foodstuffs, which isn't so much a deal today. I mean, we've seen that, right? We've seen pl price fluctuations, but not as sort of volatile that it was even in the early seventies. Right. So that was a big big push to get you know price control. So sugar was one of them, right? Again, meaning that, oh, we had a good year, we had a bad year, Brazil had a drought, you know, less sugar, price goes up, mm -hmm. right? We're much more sensitive to that supply and demand. So how do we get around it? Well, that's where, that's where high fructose corn syrup came in. Right. So what is high fructose corn syrup? I mean, it's some incredible bastardization of corn, <laughs> <laughs> right? So corn, so when we talk about these... Um, you know, carbohydrates are the, they're monosaccharides, right? So glucose and fructose, these are the two that are important. So corn has a lot of corn starch in it. And is corn sweet? I mean, we eat sweet corn and sweet corn, anything that's sweet is going to have some fructose in it. But for the most part, I would say that corn is not sweet like sugarcane is right, sweet. Right, right. It's more starch. It's anyway. more starch. Starch means it's glucose. Mm -hmm. Fructose means it's sweet. So fructose is a monosaccharide fruit, meaning or fructose meaning fruit sugar, mm -hmm. right? So you eat a honey crisp, crisp apple. There's a fair amount of fructose in that. Yeah. Whereas a Granny Smith apple has less fructose in it, right? So these different fruits or anything is going to have varying levels of fructose and glucose. So glucose is not sweet. Fructose is sweet. So corn, for the most part, is glucose. Right. Bread is glucose. Rice is glucose. 
peaches, grapes, apples, has fructose in it, but it's always a mixture of fructose and glucose, right? So again, the, let's say corn, sweet corn has a little bit of fructose in it, whereas the corn that we feed to animals is not gonna be as sweet, right? It's not sweet corn. So there's some varying levels of fructose. But some Japanese scientists came up with a method where they could say, where we could isomerize cornstarch. So you isomerize it, you, you, so isomer, now we're in chemistry, yeah. you know, high school chemistry. And isomer means it has the same exact chemical formula, it's just in a different arrangement of those chemical, of the molecules there. So fructose and glucose are isomers, which means they're the same exact chemical formula. But, you know, I think it's the hydroxyl group and OH group on fructose is on one side of the molecule, on the glucose molecule, it's on the other side. It's just flipped. But it makes that a huge difference. makes a huge difference. It's now uh, has sweetness. It adds sweetness to it. It also is metabolized differently. So fructose is only metabolized in the liver, whereas glucose is metabolized by every cell in your body. Mm. We love glucose because mm -hmm. it's instant energy. Every cell in our body uses glucose. So our brain uses it, our muscles use it, right? So it's, you know, energy, energy du jour. Whereas fructose, it's got to go to the liver because all those other organs can't use it. It has to be changed into glucose or potentially fat before the body can use it. So the liver's got to get involved, which means it's a potential burden. On the liver. Potential toxin, right? When, how do we use the word toxin? Is it toxic? Is it a burden? Where do we sit with that? That's this whole moderation piece that we'll come back to. Anyway, so high fructose corn syrup, it was the idea that they were able to turn the glucose in corn into fructose through this isomerization, thus high fructose. High fructose corn syrup. Corn syrup isn't really sweet. If you've had corn syrup, like you bake with it, or the Carol corn syrup, I mean, it has some sweetness to it. But if you, the high fructose corn syrup changes that into more fructose. Mm -hmm. And then you can change it as much as you want. You could make it 100% fructose, or you can make it 55% fructose, or you can make it 30% fructose. Generally, what's used in the, in the food industry is high fructose corn syrup 55, which means it's 55% uh, fructose, 45% glucose. So they're basically changing the corn to have more fructose? Correct. And in, in fact, so if we talk about sucrose, so sucrose is what we get from beet sugar, cane, you know, cane sugar, that's sucrose. Sucrose is a disaccharide. It's made up of one molecule of glucose and one molecule of fructose. So in other words, that would be like High fructose corn syrup, 50. 50, right. right? right. So the, the high fructose corn syrup that's made is a little bit sweeter than what we normally get from, from um, sucrose. That honestly doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, it doesn't sound that bad. It's metabol. I mean, for all intents and purposes, fructose is fructose, glucose is glucose. Whether it's high fructose corn syrup or if it's in a honey smith or honey crisp apple, doesn't make any difference, right? If we're talking chemistry. Uh-huh. It's a little bit different because the high fructose corn syrup is, is in isolation. They're not bound together. So those, the fructose molecules are by themselves, whereas in an apple or something, it'll be bound together. So that may change some characteristics, but for the most part, how it's metabolized in the body, all, uh, basically identical. Huh. So somehow we demonize high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, it's a bad guy. Right. 
is more a bad guy for its economic impact than from its health impact. Now, I'm not going to tell you high fructose <laughs> corn syrup is good. Go out and dr eat it. Right. But you go to the co-op and you're like, hey, I'm going to buy you know my organic fruit snacks and it's made with fruit juice. Wow, that's better for me. Um, chemically speaking, almost the same. Way more expensive, too. Right. Uh, I'm not sure it's better for you. It's just that we've isolated fruit juice and we say that. And the food industry knows this, right? right. They use fruit juice sweetened. You're like, oh, that's okay. I can eat that. That's health food. No, 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 no. We need to be careful on this. So maybe we shouldn't demonize high fructose corn syrup as much as we do. And we should potentially demonize fruit juice sweetened things more so. Or just hold them all in the same category. Yes, put them in the same of, category. Of watch for it. Don't put one on a pedestal and take one off. I'm going to jump in here and thank you again for tuning in to listener-supported WDRT 91.9 on your dial. I'd also like to let you know about the 10th in Paul Rattay's lecture series will be happening Saturday, October 14th, and it will be the same topic that we're talking about today, actually, moderation. It's a free will donation with a Q&A the first half an hour. Questions of any stripe will be asked and answered by Paul and followed by his hour-long lecture on moderation. Thank you, Christina. Sure. I'm sure they'll be asked. I'm not sure how well they'll be answered. Oh. I'll have an answer. You're so humble. <laughs> Anyways, so the whole point of the sugar thing or the high fructose corn syrup is that how much corn do we grow in the United States? A lot. And so we have a lot of corn that we can turn into high fructose corn syrup. So what happens that if we can use that high fructose corn syrup instead of sucrose? Bonus. Bonus, which means what do we say to Brazil? Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, I don't need as much sugar from you. I don't need as much cane sugar from you. And then what happens to supply and demand? It goes down. The demand's same. Let's just say the demand's always there. Right. The supply goes up because well, now we're not supply. buying it. Right, right. So now... Now Brazil has extra sugar that it has to get rid of. What happens to the price of sugar? It goes, goes down, down and it makes sugar cheaper. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of the, there's your economics lesson. Yes. Well, and there's your, yeah, I mean, there's morality all hooked up in that too. You know, what is it like to work with your neighbors and yeah, interesting. So anyway, so that's perhaps the worst part of high fructose corn syrup is not so much the health effect, which I'm going to say not necessarily good, but the economic impact in that now sugar is cheap, so now we put it in everything. And now cream is not cheap, so our ice cream is too sweet. There's not enough fat. Right. End of story. But regardless, we come back to moderation. So what's a moderate consumption of sugar? Uh, it's going to be different for me than it is for you, maybe? Yeah, and then it depends on who are we comparing ourselves to. The, the typical American today. Right. So the numbers on our sugar consumption is somewhere between, it's a pretty big range, 113 to 170 pounds a year. Depends on whether we include fruit juice in this or not, which I would include. So let's say, let's just say it's 150 pounds, mm -hmm. 150 pounds a year. So that's the average. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I ration my sugar. Now how I, how I ration my sugar is say if it's added sugar, I'm going to count that. I don't count fruit as part of this. Right. Fruit juice, I would count. Mm -hmm. Dried fruit, I would count. Dried fruit, you would Dried count. Dried fruit, I would count. Fresh fruit, I don't count. So that's what I do. That's where I draw my line. Whereas if I see a diabetic patient, I'm going to say, you got to include fruit. 
So any adulteration in your mind, because the fruit is not adulterated, but it is if it's dried even. I well, mean, dried means it's just concentrated, right? right? It's just you've removed the water. You've It's just a different, you, you can eat more of it. Right, but right? that's so, my point is that there's been a sort of adulteration happened. Correct, even it. though all you've done is dried it out. Right, right. That that's still enough to say, ah, I'm going to put it on. I have to ration that. Mm-hmm. So that's my ration to say, hey, okay, I want to eat 25 pounds a year. 25 pounds is kind of my goal. Do I make that? I don't know, right? I mean, it's not like I'm writing down my sugar I was going to say, day. do you calculate that? But I'm that? pretty aware, right? And do you know what 25 pounds translates to? It translates to about 30 grams a day. Okay. Do you okay. know what 30 grams of sugar, where you're going to get 30 grams of sugar? Oh, my tutoring student, May, is, is calculating, hopefully, in her mind right now. Um, I want to say it's six tablespoons. Oh, yeah, I don't even know the number of tablespoons. Oh, okay. But let's just take something that has... 10, I think you're right. I think 10... What did you just say? 30 grams? 30 grams or 28 I think, grams or I think something. 10 grams is two tablespoons. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So that's if we're trying to visualize it. But let's just say if you drink a Coke, Which 12 ounces of Coke, right? Do you okay. know how much sugar is in a 12-ounce can of Coke? I mean... Uh, I want to say four tablespoons. I don't know. It's twenty-eight grams. Okay. So roughly speaking, the same as a the same as a, a thing of um, yogurt, actually. Yeah, there you go. Oh my god. So gosh. in other words, if you're rationing <coughs> your sugar, and I would count Coke on that, mm-hmm. I can drink one Coke a day. Am I going to use my ration coupon <laughs> on drinking Coca-Cola? No. no. What am I going to use it? Am I going to use it on yogurt? No. What am I going to use it on? Somebody makes apple crisp? Yes. Sign me up. I use my ration. And unfortunately, I probably rationed four days of my sugar on the apple crisp because I ate a bunch of that apple crisp, <laughs> right? Right. But still, so then that's the idea. Okay, I eat that today, and now I got three days that I can't eat any sugar or added sugar or fruit juice. And is that literally how you live? Yeah, I, I, I follow. I mean, that's in my mind. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I probably am good some, but for the most part, I'm, I'm aware of that. Yes, yeah. that I'm like, okay, how do I control that sugar? How, where is it in my household? And I can tell you where it's at, right? I know what it's in. Yeah. Um, and then it's just a matter of, okay, how much do I eat of that? Right. Should I eat none? Should I eat 30 grams? Should I eat 60 grams? Because still 60 grams is going to put you at 50 pounds a year. 50 pounds a year is still a lot better than 150 pounds a year. And here we come into moderation is Correct. Subjective. So where do we get at that? And I'm sure that how, how good am I? But I, I'm just using that as a guide and I'm, I'm paying attention to is this added sugar that's put in this. But like I said, I don't include fruit. Mm-hmm. So some people may need to include fruit, so we have to maybe set the rules differently. And of one. But regardless, I'm using 1830 as my marker to say what's moderate compared to using 2012 data. I, I don't know what the, where the 150 pounds come. You, you know, the, the numbers are, are large. Actually, our sugar consumption's gone down a little bit in the last 10, 15 years. Because Not of, tremendous, because but of we, marketing. we're aware. Of, yeah. I mean, we're aware, like, sugar's a bad guy. Yeah. But so that just becomes, where do we set our parameters? Instead of saying, oh, well, I only eat 120 pounds a year. That's much better than the normal American who's eating 150. True. True. But that's four times the amount that they were eating in 1835. Or like, well, we weren't healthy in 1835. We died of pneumonia and influenza. <laughs> yeah, but we didn't, did we, die cardiova- did we die cardiovascular disease and cancer? 
Well, perhaps we didn't live long enough to get cardiovascular disease and cancer. This gets really murky, yes? Yeah. But I know how sugar is metabolized, or I know how fructose is metabolized in the body, and I worry about that. It's a burden on your liver. Mm -hmm. But at what point does it become a burden that now that burden becomes a toxin? I can't tell you that. Right. I could maybe look at your triglyceride levels or look for fatty liver disease and say, or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and say, you've got a problem. You're eating too much fructose. Right? But do we wait for that to happen? And so do you know non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NAFLD? Yes, I've heard that. It's rather epidemic. Oh, epidemic. It, the numbers are 18 to 24% of Americans have some semblance of fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Meaning if we took an ultrasound of your liver, we'd see some fat infiltration, which is not good. Right. But this happens on a spectrum. So you could have a little fat infiltration, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then eventually you'd end up with, you know, cirrhosis and scarring in the liver and you die, right? But same as fatty liver disease from drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. So you can drink alcohol and trash your liver. This is what I mean when I say trash the liver. Or you can eat fructose and trash your liver. Yeah, it's going to take a lot more fructose to trash your liver, so it may not be the same level of toxin, but how much fructose do we consume? Well, again, I said 150 pounds of sugar, so let's say that that 150 pounds, remember what I said, that sugar is half glucose, half fructose. Mm -hmm. So let's say that translates to 75 pounds of fructose a year. Mm -hmm. Is that enough to damage your liver? I don't know. In some people, yes. In right. other people, no. It depends, right? It depends. Yeah. And that's where the moderation comes in. Because you won't know. It's not even that you even go and say, hey, do I have fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? It's often found by mistake or not by mistake because they did something and they said, oh, by the way, you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And people are like, oh, whoa, what do I do about that? Well, you know, um, cut your calories, lose weight and exercise more. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I mean, that's good advice for everybody, but right. how, you know, yeah. not very specific instead of saying, hey, you need to ration your fructose or ration your sugar significantly. It seems like that would be easy to make the connection. Why isn't that said? Uh, I don't know. Well, I, it's because it's biochemistry. So we don't think, when we think about nutrition, we don't think about how the liver is metabolizing fructose and glucose and this kind of thing. We're just like, and then we just say sugar as a word, mm -hmm. right? And in sugar, we're not being specific. Like we talk, talk about blood sugar. So is it blood fructose? No, it's blood glucose. glucose. So now when we say blood sugar, we're talking about blood glucose. When we talk about sugar from eating it, the plain white stuff, now we're talking about sucrose, which is half fructose, half glucose. And so we're not being specific when we say sugar. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So biochemists, chemists would be like, drive them crazy because you'd say sugar. They'll be like, well, what do you Which mean? Which one? Like, draw me the chemical formula, then we will have no confusion there, right? Because that's where they live. Whereas we just use that term loosely. Right. And then what's funny is that we talk about the glycemic index of food. So glycemic index, you know what I mean by yes. that? How quickly it spikes the blood sugar. So this would be a problem with somebody with diabetes. Mm -hmm. Like we want to keep the glycemic index low. Right. But that's a curious thing that glucose spikes the blood spikes blood glucose, but fructose does not. So foods that are high in fructose have a low glycemic index. Mm -hmm. So my example is agave nectar. Have you had agave nectar? Yeah. It's really super sweet. Yeah. And they say it's a low glycemic sweetener. 
because it's all fructose. Right. There's no glucose in it, so it doesn't spike your blood sugar. So a diabetic says, oh, no problem. I can eat all the, all the agave nectar that I want. Right. But so where's that agave nectar going? In their liver? To their liver. So their liver is like, whoa, you just gave me a huge bunch of a burden that I now have to deal with that maybe that's not so good, but it, I won't spike your blood sugar, right. blood, blood glucose, let's be clear here, yes? Yeah. And my opinion, my hypothesis, is that you know I see people and I put them on low carbohydrate diets, yes, and I do it short term. And though diabetics, I'm gonna say, your relationship with carbohydrates needs to change. The lower, the better. I mean, you don't necessarily need to be in ketosis, but we need to, you, diabetes means you're not tolerating glucose very well. So um, my opinion, though, is if I saw them 20 years earlier, that I wouldn't have to say, oh, we got to have this, we have to have this conversation about carbohydrates. It would be maybe we just need to have a conversation of things that are burdening your liver that may 20 years later turn into diabetes oh. or cancer or cardiovascular disease or these kinds of things. Yeah. So I'm saying, you know, see me 20 years earlier and say, well, let's do a little rationing here. Got and it. rationing. So this is just the fructose conversation, but I'm going to take this further and say, hey, that's the same thing with alcohol, mm -hmm. right? I mean, alcohol moderation, I'm not sure what that is, right? That that's even more damaging or more burdensome on the liver. Mm -hmm. But again, there's a lot of people that have better tolerance to alcohol. Like I have very poor tolerance to alcohol. Like I, I tried to be an alcoholic when I went to college. It just doesn't work. I get sick. Yeah. And it's not just being hung over for, you know, half the next day. It's like two days later, I'm still like, whoa, I don't feel good. Oh, gosh. So I learned very quickly, like, I can't function for a day and a half when I do this. I can't do this. Yeah. Whereas my roommate's like, no big deal, right? No, I'd bounce right back. I, by noon on Sunday, I'm good to go. And I'm like, oh, I'm still down for the count. Yeah. But anyways, that's just my liver detoxification pathways. So alcoholics tend to have really strong liver detoxification pathways. They're able to detoxify the alcohol, mm -hmm. but they keep going to the well too many times, right? Eventually, there's a cumulative effect over time that they're going to damage their liver. But again, this is the idea of tolerance. Yeah. What is your tolerance for fructose? What is your tolerance for alcohol? Oh, but wait, alcohol is good for me. And, uh, you know, a drink a day is beneficial for this. Maybe, but you're also got an aspect of the alcohol that's going to trash your liver. You've got a risk-benefit ratio. Mm -hmm. Same thing with fructose. And fructose actually isn't just the bad guy. Fructose actually builds glycogen storage. There's benefits to fructose. It's just there's a level at which it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. And that lever, level, unfortunately, is highly individual. Yeah, N of one. And N, N of one. And so you look at the issue and say, well, where do I need to go with this? And how, how aggressive do I need to be about doing something so that I maybe prevent diabetes or um, cardiovascular disease or cancer or these kinds of things instead of waiting for it to develop and then saying, oh, now I got to like clean everything up. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to go on a Spartan diet instead of saying, yeah, maybe you need to take the burden off 20 years ago or 40 years ago, right? Because we start that really early and it's a cumulative effect. And coffee right along with that too, right? These are all things that I think are burdens, burdens on our body that are potential toxins dependent on, upon the frequency or the duration and the dose. Yeah, and who you are. And who you are. And 
I, can I take a picture of you and determine that? Can I do a gene pro profile? I mean, this is kind of popular these days now is that we're going to test your genes and your genetic profile will tell me what your tolerance is. And I, I think there's something there, but it's still like I don't feel like I can hang my hat on that and say we know that. Yeah, it's only part of the picture because it's of part course of the how you were raised and what you ate and what you continue to eat and your environment and all of those things need to be taken into account, not just the fact that I come from Italian descent, for instance, right? Correct. So fructose is a burden on the body. Alcohol is a burden on the body for everybody. It's just that some people have more tolerance and less tolerance. Mm -hmm. And that do we have a test? In fact, doing a genetic test I would say a better test is at least doing a challenge test. A challenge test means that we're, you'd, you'd drink caffeine or you'd take, you'd take a acetaminophen or you'd do something and then you'd test your liver and your, or you'd test your blood and your urine and say, how quickly did I clear these? Mm. Right, that that's telling me, okay, I'm challenging you with something. How well did you respond? Mm. I, I mean, I don't do that. I mean, actually, I, we, we did that when I was in school. That was part of the, how we test liver detoxification pathways is challenge testing and that's, not done so much. I mean, we could still do that, but it's it's kind of moved more into the genetic testing. So we say, oh, well, you have the potential. So liver detoxification pathways, it's an acetylation pathway. That's the chemical pathway of the, the chemical process that happens. And so we can test your genes for acetylation and we'll say, oh, you're a poor acetylator, which means you may not detoxify alcohol very well. But again, you know, how much do you drink? And is that then the issue to say, well, you shouldn't drink alcohol mm -hmm. or you should, or how much do you get away with? But I'm always going to trust the body. I want to listen to the body. And if people are coming to me with symptoms and things that are going on, it's like, okay, well, what do you need to remove to feel better? Mm -hmm. Right. Thus the obstacles to cure thing, right? right? Or the moderation is just a mindset that somehow validates what we're doing instead of saying, I really need to use this as a rationing piece to say there's like a firm limit that there's probably a point at which I can tolerate this and not tolerate it. And I think the older we get, the more we come up against those walls as well. I mean, I know my mom can only have so many drinks at a party and I get headaches if I drink coffee. And, you know, I mean gets to a point. I think in your 20s, it can be difficult to have that reflection. Although, like you say, in college, you had that immediate reaction to alcohol. Yeah, somehow I learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, How many times you're going to do that, right? So how much <laughs> fried food are you going to eat before you say, hey, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I feel terrible. Yeah. How many times are you going to go to Applebee's and eat before you're like, every time I eat at Applebee's, I feel sick. Yeah. Like, maybe I shouldn't eat there. <laughs> oh, but everybody wants to go there. I'll go there and I'll eat before I go so I don't have to eat there. Because I feel terrible. Right. I don't mean to demonize Applebee's, but we could demonize anybody. Yes. It's yeah. just the idea that everything tastes the same there. Right. Or, or like pizza. If I have pizza, oh, pizza from anywhere, I notice that I'm immediately dehydrated. I need so much liquid after that just to balance out probably cheese and salt. But um, yeah, because I'm always shocked at how much cheese goes on a pizza. Is it worth it? Is no. the question you have to ask right. yourself. We just had pizza again and it had been... God, when did we go to DC? Anyway, I think it had been six months since we'd had pizza, my daughter and I. And it was, to me, she was fine with it. To me, I was like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> like, I'm just, I think I'm done with pizza. We make it at home and then we can, you know, calibrate what the crust is made of and how much cheese. And I always put, you know, more vegetables like shiitake and broccoli. 
So I prefer homemade pizza. It was a convenience thing in the moment. I was very tired. But uh, yeah, right, exactly. Is it worth it? No. It's your pizza (laughs) tolerance, yes. (laughs) So, and again, is that a liver issue? Is that a digestive issue? Is it an immune system issue, right? So those are the ways that I think about things. So I see somebody and I say, well, where is their imbalance lie? Like what is is the, the, the quickest path that they can take to feel better? And, and, and how do you do that as an individual? How do you um, separate those? Separate each of those categories? Yeah. yeah, well, so then I ask, how are you digesting, right? So for example, is your pizza thing, is that something that you manifest in your digestive tract where you're like, well, I feel bloated, or I feel, you know, I get loose stool, or is there some aspect that's, phys- you know, what are the physical symptoms from that? Right. To say, is this a digestive piece? And we, so we talk about cheese, and it would be, oh, is that a fat digestion piece? Does that have to do with your liver gallbladder? Does that have to do with maybe we need to support that? Or is this really something more of a, like I said, a liver burden, right? So fructose is not going to be so much a digestive issue, though that's not necessarily true. People have fructose malabsorption where they'll have basically irritable bowel syndrome from eating too much fructose, mm-hmm. but that's a digestive issue, not necessarily a liver issue. Right. But if it's a liver, then I'm gonna, uh, it's gonna affect more sort of internal mechanisms in your body, right? So not so much digestion. So I'm trying to differentiate between that. Immune system then is gonna say, well, is, you know, is it burdening the immune system? Are there other things that are happening that may contribute to that? So autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. So autoimmune disease would mean now your immune system is engaged and it's basically on the on switch when we want it off. So that's kind of where, where I'm going clinically to try to assess you know, these, functional, these functional capacities and say, how do, we, how do we clean those up? But for the most part, it's like, well, let's just remove all the obstacles. Right, I mean, yeah, so let's do as you were talking up, about right? it, I, I mean, was like, maybe I just shouldn't eat pizza. <laughs> yeah, and then we don't know which one made the difference, and then, well, you took sugar out, you took alcohol out, you took caffeine out, you took gluten out, you took dairy out, you took eggs out. Yes, thumbs up, I want all those gone, that's aggressive. But now we got to figure out, but do they need to be gone all the time? Yeah. And is that sustainable? Is it sustainable? And then you need to challenge that and say, hey, if I challenge this, how do I respond digestively, immune system wise, liver wise, you know, that kind of thing. But this is the function of the human body, right? It's protecting us Mm -hmm. that we develop the tolerance so that we can live in this environment, right? I mean, hay fever season happens. Is it is it the ragweed that's causing the problem? No, people scale or tippy. And then they put ragweed on top of it, and then boom, it tips the scale. And then we blame the ragweed. And I'm not saying ragweed's not to blame. It's just that we want to build their tolerance so that when they're exposed to ragweed, they don't respond the same. Because the ragweed was a trigger this to a trigger, an but underlying. It was one of the weights on the scale. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of a hard-to-control one, right, unless you live in a bubble. Mm-hmm. But then does your – do you know what I mean if you're not exposed to ragweed? Right, but then you need to – address the underlying issue yeah so is it that you're eating other foods that are burdensome to your body are you drinking too much alcohol i mean the list goes on is there too much stress right it's not just food too it's all these other things that contribute to that but it's you know it's trying to improve the function of the body but not by taking stuff but by perhaps by removing stuff or in this case that we talk about here rationing things but not rationalizing and saying oh i don't eat that much sugar i don't drink that much alcohol I don't drink that much caffeine, right. coffee. And looking at it from a positive perspective of using rationing as a strengthening device, not as a 
you know, punishment, so to speak, right? Correct. Like, and know. how, yeah, what we, the problem is we want to celebrate it every meal. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to listener-supported WDRT, 91.9 on your dial. I want to let you know about the 10th of Paul Rattay's lecture series on October 14th, that's a Saturday, at the Commons on Jefferson Street. And the topic will be the same as what we're discussing now, moderation. It's a free will donation lecture, and the first half an hour will be Q&A. Questions of any stripe will be answered intelligently, no matter what, <laughs> no matter what Paul may denigrate himself by saying. Oh, gosh. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so perhaps what's the solution now? How do we deal with the rationing? Like, what's, how, how do we make this work? Like, what, is that, what does that look like? So we've talked about this before. That's where I come from, that boring diet piece. Yes. Right. Oh, gosh. How do we make our diet more boring? But just before we got on to talk about this on the radio, we were talking about a really nice balancing piece, that calendar effect of two and one, right? Of yes. The, I love that. And it reminds me of my macrobiotic days, actually. It's what I used to do with macrobiotics, two and, two and one in a day. It's right in. Maybe that's a diet book that needs to be written, right? Oh, my gosh. But somebody wrote The Boring Diet. I, I think I told you this. I actually bought that book, too. It's really small. And I, I'm just jealous <laughs> that he fitting. chose The Boring Diet. I, I'm thinking of reaching out to him. And, Can I write The Boring Diet, too? I'll totally give you credit. <laughs> but the whole idea is that how do you become boring? But not too boring, yes? Right. So that's kind of what we talked about is, like, what's too boring or not? And to preface this a little bit, this is the idea that somebody will do a detox diet for four weeks once a year right right so they detoxify and they do it for 28 days and they're like oh my gosh i feel fantastic everything's great and i sleep and my energy and then they go back to retoxifying for 11 months until they redo the detox 12 months later and my my response to that is yeah but don't you want to feel that way all the time <laughs> why do you have to detoxify to feel that way and what did you detoxify what was it that made you feel better or feel worse. And usually in a detoxification diet, you're Spartan, right? You're taking mm -hmm. everything out, yeah, which coffee, I'm fine alcohol. with, but we still want to figure out what is that, what's your, how much tolerance do you have to these things? Can you drink any coffee or should coffee just be gone completely? Mm -hmm. And this is the hard part, right? Is putting it back in and saying, oh, well, this isn't a toxin. It's just a slight burden. And I seem to be able to tolerate that. But the whole idea is that you feel better when you do that 28-day detox that somehow I would think it's well within your effort to say, hey, I need to make this last longer. Mm -hmm. And I'm not satisfied to have my sleep fall apart, my energy fail, and this kind of thing. right? But again, I've been in clinical practice. I see it all the time. People are all overdoing the, the two-week, four-week cleanse, but not really figuring out what they need to do for the next you know, 20 years. But okay, so perhaps the, now we get to the boring diet, like what's the right rhythm of this? Mm -hmm. So what's the pattern? What should it be? So my thought we talked about is like 66% or 66.7% boring <laughs> right. and 33.3% exciting. Right. So maybe we look at it as a three meals a day, two meals are boring, one's more exciting. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's breakfast and lunch are boring and then dinner is where you stray. Mm -hmm. right? uh, I, I kind of talk about this with carbohydrate cycling too when people have taken carbohydrates out and they go on a very low carbohydrate diet about how to put the carbohydrates back in and typically and this isn't always true right I mean it's always an NO1 but I tend to find people do better keeping breakfast and lunch 
lower carbohydrate and then dinner kind of like don't worry about it eat carbohydrates at dinner especially because you think that that helps people sleep as yeah well, it increases right? serotonin in your mm -hmm. brain and we like serotonin later on in the day so sugar i mean carbohydrates aren't the bad guy it's just people have gotten carbohydrate intolerant that now somehow they got to figure out oh wow i actually have to ration my carbohydrates but you don't have to go to ketosis right you just got to figure out where is that sweet spot but that's work right yeah, and yes. that's you got to do it i can't do it for you but maybe you take a principle and say well maybe i just need to figure out what what am i good with with the boring diet mm -hmm. like what does that look like and what are the same i can eat the same thing kind of over and over and over i mean if you look at native cultures you would see they eat the same kinds of food over and over and over and over they yes. didn't have a wide variety of food. Right. This is an affluent culture that we have. We have choice. We have availability. We have blueberries in February, right? That We have things that we wouldn't normally have. And we have marketing that tells us that variety is the spice of life and that we need to have all of these different things, right? I mean, whereas I know people, I think you are one of them, who are very Spartan in your way, and you have these beans and you have these vegetables and and quite frankly, I don't. I wonder about all of this variety, right? The necessity of it. It can be. It can be the thirty-three point three percent of straying necessary. You know, I mean, and, and it doesn't have to be something you know wild either, like alcohol. But I'm just saying, I, as I've gone on in my own practice, I'm I'm wondering how much variety of vegetables even is necessary, and how much I need to berate myself for not, you know having the, I don't know, what's what's the thing that's always in my CSA box? Kohlrabi. <laughs> it usually oh, goes gosh, bad before kohlrabi. I can force I it down my gullet. Yes. <laughs> so what are those vegetables? I mean, for me, it's routinely onions, garlic, carrots, celery. celery. Yep. yep. I mean, over and over and over and over because they make beans taste better. They're, 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 they're you know, what, what do you call it? Is it Mirapox? Is that what you call it, where you're putting that mixture in? It's the guy yeah. that has the heirloom beans talks about that. Okay, yeah, but, I don't know. But, but just the idea, like, what do I need? Like, what's the bare minimum? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you can always get those. I mean, I can't, I can't even think about life without garlic and onions. Right. right. I mean, garlic is just like the stinking rose, yes. But mm -hmm. it just adds that. It adds that. But regardless, so how, do we, how are we boring and then how are we exciting? The, the, and the issue is, there, are we exciting with alcohol? Are we exciting with sugar? Are we exciting with, you know, fried food? I mean, it'd be whatever. But on some level, to rein that in and say it's one meal rather than, you know, all three meals or that I celebrated every meal, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's like eating breakfast. So we say, well, eating cereal and I'm not eating any sugar, but I'm like, oh, you're eating a bunch of carbohydrates and maybe that's not a good substantive balance piece. What do you suggest to your clients? My daughter will be listening to this Ooh, uh, program. <laughs> now, now that we're talking about this subject, what do you suggest when you're trying to do a low carb breakfast? What the heck is out there that so would be palatable? How do you eat dinner for breakfast, right? So <gasps> dinner, you know, how I are you flipping that around? Do that. Yeah, so what do you use quickly? So I can tell you, right, with, with Gabriel, my 13-year-old, that I'm all over, like, let's keep carbs zero at breakfast. Right? Yeah. I like to keep them at zero. Okay. The egg bake is the latest thing. Yes. So okay. it's a frittata. Yeah. So it's eggs. It's some kind of sausage, right? Chorizo is the thing that's of choice. 
It's a bunch of eggs, chorizo, no dairy. You can't do dairy, so I'm not putting any cheese in there. I'm not putting any milk in there. I'm using a milk substitute. But then I put vegetables in there. I put spinach in there. I put mushrooms in there. I put peppers in there. Those are, you know, not no carb, but very low carbohydrate. Yeah. I don't want potatoes in there. I don't want anything. I want to, it, you know, it's just better for his blood sugar that his day starts that way. The problem is that I'll, I may exhaust that after a period of time, right? right? And how much variety do I need? And But this is, you know, do I make the variety by putting different kinds of vegetables in it and still having the same base? Mm-hmm. But again, I could just make them eggs in the morning too, right? There's all sorts of variations on the theme. But I tell you what's packed in his lunch is he's got carbs in there. I don't right. mind that. It's just right. the starting of the day. And I know his blood sugar and the way it goes. Mm-hmm. It's just best to say... You know, Gabriel, it's the best thing to keep you keto in the morning. And it's not even that we talk about keto. It's just like he's going to eat what I make. Mm-hmm. And what do I make that he eats? Right. And to not have him start his day with carbohydrates. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I do it. But I have a son who's, you know, really sort of um, emotionally labile based on his food consumption. So, uh, yeah, we go that. And, you know, he's no gluten, no dairy. So I don't have I don't have dairy as a crutch there. Mm hmm. I can give him a high fat dairy source. So it's eggs, which seem fine. Butter's fine for him too, right? So, but that's the latest piece, you know, whether it's again, some kind of meat or even if it's a leftover from the night before. Right. If I'm on a weekend though, then I'm not so, I'm not so diligent on the no carbs for breakfast. Okay. Right. So on the weekend, so if it's Saturday morning, then I don't mind so much. Yeah. Because if he's just going to lay, lay about for a little while, that's fine. Right. When he's going to be in school and he's got, you know, focus and that kind of thing, then I'm going to, then I'm going to ride that. And then again, you know, he'll eat lunch whenever, even if he gets carbohydrates in there, I'm not worried because it's, right. That's so much the thing, but she's never, she's never sold on dinner leftovers for breakfast. I, I can do that. Yeah. But. Well, he'll eat beans. So I make a lot of, you know, I have beans, whatever the bean soup or stew, or, you know, you have green white bean chili right now in the fridge. So he'd eat that for breakfast easily. I could put that on rice oh, and man. eat it in that morning, but I'm not going to give that to him before school. Okay. Right? So that's more of a thing we do later on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and whereas breakfast, I'm being very diligent. In fact, I don't eat breakfast. I'm basically making him breakfast. Right. And that's what he's getting. So I make these, the egg bake and, you know, I make an egg bake and it's in the fridge because I've got it for three days. Yeah. Because I don't eat it. Right. Not right. that I wouldn't eat it, but it's almost like, ooh, that's, that's considered, I consider that gold for Gabriel, right? That's Gabriel's crutch in the morning. Well, also, why would you eat if you're not hungry? True. Right. I mean, why would you force yourself to eat breakfast just because it's breakfast time if you don't have hunger? Yeah, right. And I, I tend to function better without eating mm-hmm. in the morning. But I intermittent fast, whether that's good or bad, and everybody else should do that, that works for me. Mm-hmm. My mind is clearer, that kind of thing. So in the last five minutes, anything more about moderation? Yeah. So again, perhaps trying to figure out that boring diet and what are the rules. And the boring diet too is still not making food taste bland, but how do you take sort of maybe bland foods that we eat all the time and figure out how to give it that je ne sais quoi, right? How do you now develop that? So you cook beans in a way that you're like, wow, I can really taste the depth to this, Mm -hmm. right? So it's I keep going back to that. It's not a cookbook, but the the sal. Uh, what's her name? Salmon. Is it salmon? Nosrat. The fat, uh, fa- salt, fat, acid, heat. Oh, we've talked about this, haven't yeah, we? Yeah. 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 So she she got a Netflix series. Uh-huh. Yes, but that book is fantastic because it's not really recipes. It's about how to use those flavors. Oh. And the heat isn't spice. It's cooking. Yeah. 
But, you know, salt and fat are two biggies, right? I mean, the standard American diet is fat, salt, sweet. Mm -hmm. And she still talks about fat and salt. But using fat and salt properly and maybe from different sources than eating perhaps seed oil, right? Maybe it's about using lard or maybe it's about using, you know, unrefined avocado oil, yes? Yeah. You know, how do we find some of these things or toasted sesame seed oil versus using canola oil and these crap seed oils that are now mass-produced, industrial-produced oils that we're using for that but getting more sort of... I mean, let's call them native fats, but fats that would carry more flavor. They're not refined. They're not oxidized. And to use that as a, a substrate there, right? You're using cream, for example, right? Again, you use cream, you're not going to use as much of it. Right. You don't need as much of it. Exactly. Yeah. So, but, but that's just the idea of changing the kind of fat, right? Salt also. Like salt, I can't imagine my kitchen without any salt. But... Ditto. The salt being, I'm adding that, and I'm adding that to enhance the flavor. I'm not eating something that's salty to begin with. Because mm -hmm. restaurant food, packaged food, I mean, 80% of our sodium comes from packaged and restaurant food. Right. So don't eat packaged and restaurant food. Use the salt shaker and use it to taste to figure out how do I do this to get the flavors to meld and get flavors to pop and do that kind of thing, right? Yeah, except for, except for when I add it to rice. I'm, I'm still very diligent from my macrobiotic days. So I'm, you add salt to rice? An eighth of a teaspoon to every grain. Oh, interesting. Per cup. Per cup? Yeah. I don't do that. Yeah. In fact, I don't put butter on rice, but I'm a right, but remember, I ate rice I can in taste Japan where the difference. I just ate rice by itself, nothing. There's nothing in it. If I don't, it's the if I don't add salt to rice or any grain, I can taste it. It tastes ah, bland to me. Yeah. Interesting. So I don't have that experience. Interesting. That is interesting because I now maybe can't I need it. to do that. And now I got to see. You have because, to at least try. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. You put salt on watermelon. Have you put salt on watermelon? Yeah, occasionally. A little bit because it'll enhance the flavor. <laughs> right. But you're doing it because it enhances, right? So yes. Again, she states this in the book, right? Salt enhances the flavor. Fat carries it. It's a mouthfeel thing. It's not really a taste. Yes, and right. that, well, that may, maybe a little taste, I mean, but generally it, right. speaking, it's it's carrying. And then sour mm -hmm. balances. So you're using Perfect. those things for the right to get that je ne sais quoi, and that's just using core things, right? Sour would be using vinegar, vinegar or lemon, lemon, that kind of thing, and, and then how to balance those flavors when you're cooking. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really find that that it's been kind of just eye-opening to me because it's not really a recipe. It's like, oh, I can actually trust my taste buds to tell me because I've always been a recipe guy. Like, tell me exactly how much to put in there, right? I'm going to measure it and do that exactly. Whereas now I'm a little bit more liberal on that. And I taste it and I trust my taste to tell me because mm -hmm. I'm always like, oh, I'm going to put too much salt in it. And, you know, we're kind of salt phobic too, right? Because salt is hypertension and increases risk for cardiovascular disease, blood, but blood, yet... Blood pressure. How much? How many times have I eaten food from wherever that they don't put any salt in there? I know. Yeah. So never. that's boring in a bad way, right? That's right. real. Maybe that's boring that we don't use any salt, but just adding some salt to just enhance the other boringness, I don't know that that would make it just better. Yeah. But anyways, how do you make that boring diet perhaps not so boring? Mm -hmm. And don't celebrate your meals with sugar. Yeah, right, right. Twice twice a week, some some little dessert. Yeah, right, that's right, that's right. our rule of thumb at our house. Of course, Annalena will be listening to this. She'll be like, yeah, but you never make desserts anymore because I'm so busy. <laughs> it's that apple crisp, though. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Simple. i got to go back to simple. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Paul, for your time. 
And don't forget, Saturday, October 14th at the Commons on Jefferson Street is the 10th of his lecture series, where you'll you'll undoubtedly, I have to say this, you'll undoubtedly hear a completely different lecture. <laughs> That's the amazing thing about Paul Rattay. It's never the same thing twice. So you should come on out and remember that you can ask any questions the first half an hour. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Christina. See you next time. Okay. Bye-bye.